Hello, everybody. Welcome or welcome back to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host today as we cover some local legend and lore from around Accomack County, Virginia. This will be the second episode in the Spooktober series where we're approaching Halloween, so I wanted to cover some more of the spooky stories of the area. In the last episode, we had a story from Maryland. The Wicomico County Catman was discussed. Now, I am a huge cat lover, but I really don't think I'd like to run into the Catman. So if that sounds kind of interesting to you, please go back and take a listen. Um, This week, we'll actually have three episodes, with Maryland being episode number one, Today will be Virginia, and then the last episode will be about Delaware, and I'm very excited about that episode for a couple of different reasons. One is because it took place, like, really in my backyard, where I spent so much time riding my bike as a kid, um, probably annoying my big sister to no end, as she was nine years older than I was. And if I wanted to ride my bike, she had to go with me at times um, because I was younger. But we eventually, I think, um, she kind of got used to me tagging along with her. And we had so much fun just, you know, spending the summer riding our bikes around Woodland, which is part of Seaford, Delaware. I'll also be doing an interview with someone who quite literally wrote the book on the topic And in this case, the book does an excellent job of kind of combining fact and fiction to make the story more relatable, especially to today's society. So, like I said, I'm really looking forward to that one. So I hope everybody can tune in and listen to that. Now, as these episodes are meant to be a little bit shorter, I won't go into my full introduction, um, but just a couple of things I do want to go over. One is, just as usual, any sources that I've used will be linked in the description of the episode. Also, as a content warning with this and pretty much probably every episode that I do, there may be discussions on topics that some might find um, a little distressing or disturbing. So please make sure that you're using your own discretion in which episodes you may want to listen to. And then lastly, there have been some recent issues with um, the podcast being available on a certain platform. I'm not sure what happened, but it did come to my attention um, as someone was trying to find the podcast on that platform that they were not able to. So while that's actually been fixed now and it is available, you know, I'm not sure if all those who listen through that platform will be notified of any new episodes if they were subscribed. So unfortunately, you know, the numbers of listeners did drop over the last couple episodes. So if you could please share, um, let others know if you think they might enjoy this type of content. I did post this on Facebook as well, but I even had problems with getting the link up a little bit too. It said that it was spam, so who knows what was going on with that, but, you know, I 
really appreciate it again if you could share the podcast or um, give some type of engagement, whether it means you, know, you leave a rating or a comment. It all depends on what platform you use to listen to it, as some will allow you, um, you know, to leave a rating or a comment or something like that. But with all of that being said, let's get into some of the local legends and spooky tales of Accomack County, Virginia. There are many things and places that are symbolic of Accomack County. Amongst those are NASA at Wallops, the Chincoteague Ponies, and the Assateague Lighthouse. Those last two actually have some links, as we'll see in a moment. Lighthouses themselves hold a mystique. They can symbolize safety in a harbor and a guiding light to those who make their living on the water. They can warn people of dangers of rocks hidden just below the waterline and the possibility of grounding if they get too close to shore. But before there's a lighthouse at a location, there might be a tragedy or shipwreck where many people lose their lives, and it's only from that that a lighthouse is built. When I think of a lighthouse and spooky tales, I think of an image of a woman, possibly in a long black flowing dress, walking along the shoreline in front of a lighthouse, mourning the loss of her husband or son, or possibly even in a white flowing dress, mourning the loss of her betrothed, never actually getting to say I do. There's also the idea of lighthouse keepers in years gone by, who lived a very lonely and isolated existence. Even if a lighthouse was built amongst a community with its populace, the keeper or keepers were duty-bound to observe the water, making sure that the light stayed lit and that they provided safety to those who rode the open waves. Many a man and beast have lost their lives before a lighthouse was built. Standing at 142 feet above the ground, the red and white lighthouse, also known as the Assateague Light, came into its current incarnation in 1867. This was after the original lighthouse, built in 1833, was only 45 feet tall. This can understandably be insufficient to adequately cast its light out amongst the ocean. The locations along Chincoteague and Assateague can be a little confusing as these are two distinct places but share a lot of history. I will link a map in the description of the episode to get a better idea of the different locations. As I've said many times before, waterways have helped build the peninsula and really the whole east coast and served as an entrance onto North America. However, there was really quite a distance between two lighthouses on Delmarva, with one being at Cape Henlopen, Delaware, but the next going south not being until you got to Cape Charles, Virginia. Cape Charles is near the very bottom of the Delmarva Peninsula and is actually Bayside, so there was nothing there off the Atlantic to help guide the ships in. With an influx of people coming to North America, there could be many lives lost if the boats weren't protected. 
And this was not only the loss of life amongst the sailors, but if they were bringing provisions to the area, then it could have negatively impacted those who are already living on the shore. Though the technology of manning lighthouses has changed just exponentially over the years, the lighthouse itself is still in use. Before the availability of electricity and electric lights, lighthouses were lit through some type of lamp, necessitating the use of oil as the fuel source. And this was not a fossil fuel at the time. It would have been an animal or vegetable oil. The lens that would reflect and project the light out into the water was something that I find very ingenuitive. At a time before computerized gadgets and push-button controls, to quote from one article on lighthouses, the lenses rotated by a weight-driven clockwork assembly wound by lighthouse keepers sometimes as often as every two hours. The lens assembly sometimes floated in liquid mercury to reduce friction. Though today we would definitely recognize that the use of mercury is not the safest thing, it's really the first part of the quote that I want to look at. And that's about the weight-driven assembly. And that we as humans use ingenuity in what centuries ago may have seemed like a very outside-of-the-box sort of thinking to address the problems plaguing us. And even though today lighthouses are electronically controlled, usually remotely, they still serve the same important role. One of the most famous tales of a ship being lost on the coast of the Atlantic on Delmarva was that of a Spanish galleon named La Galga. I may do a longer episode on that in the future, but after there's been some time between shipwreck episodes, as I've just recently done a couple um, about shipwrecks. But it's believed that this galleon was transporting ponies as well. And as the ship wrecked, many of the ponies were able to make it to shore, hence leading to the herd of Shinkatik ponies. However, some people do also argue that many of the early settlers brought horses or ponies to the area and either they got loose or were set loose and they became the herd. I personally think it was some type of combination as just a few ponies getting loose from their owner or being set free. I don't believe that handful of horses could have become a herd as big as the Shinkatake ponies. The original lighthouse keeper named David Watson really made the lighthouse keeping his entire life. He was the lone and solitary keeper, so he had no company in the lighthouse, no family, but he just lived there alone, and he tended to the needs of every aspect of the lighthouse, from actually monitoring its main function of guiding ships in and keeping the light lit, to also doing any maintenance or upkeep that needed to be done to the property. And just as a reminder, this was when the lighthouse was first built in 1933, and the lighthouse was at 45 feet. So it was not necessarily that he had to climb up 
to the top of the 145-foot building to maintain the light. But still, it was a pretty daunting task, especially if he did have to wind the mechanism every two hours. But he was very dutiful and faithful to his job. And especially as the population was nowhere near what it is today, he really didn't have anybody that checked in on him or saw him on a regular basis. But then one day, things stopped functioning as they normally did. So people did take notice and went to check on him. And when they got there, they found that the faithful lighthouse keeper of the past seven years had passed away. Though when reading tales of ghosts and hauntings, the cause of death is just listed as unknown reasons, and it's usually phrased in a way that makes it sound more sinister than it may actually be. Thinking of the time period and also not knowing exactly how old he was at the time in 1840, which is approximately when this would have taken place, he could have died from anything from an illness that came on rather suddenly to a chronic medical condition that nobody knew about, such as high blood pressure, to, yes, even possibly something more sinister, such as foul play. But we just don't know. And depending how long he had been deceased, it may have been kind of difficult to ascertain the cause of death. So, even though we don't know exactly how Mr. Watson passed away, many people believe that he still works to maintain the lighthouse, that he still wanders the area, looking over the light to make sure that it's still doing its job, going about his daily duties as he did for so long. He's been very faithful to the very end. The lighthouse itself is open to the public, and as long as this it's not going any type of renovation, that is, where it might be dangerous for anybody to climb the many steps to reach the top. So the lighthouse still has keepers, though their function is more for the historic preservation of this landmark. There have been some reports by these keepers that even though as they left each evening, they knew that every door that was supposed to be locked, was locked without any shadow of a doubt. But when they get in the next day, some of these doors have been unlocked or they're open, just as if somebody has been walking through the lighthouse, checking on things to make sure that the new visitors stay safe, checking all the nuts and bolts, the steps, and everything else to make sure that nobody else gets injured or loses their life in the lighthouse. One has to wonder if, upon seeing the new light, if Mr. Watson would understand the mechanism, or if he does, is he really impressed at all the advances that have been made that could have really made his job a lot easier when he was doing it. Now, if you would like to go visit the lighthouse, I would suggest visiting the internet page for the acetique light, just to make sure it's not closed for any reason, and to also verify the hours of operation. The hours can vary um, in the off-season, and I admit that when I've gone a few times and wanted to climb to the top, this was 
many, many years ago, before I'll say fast internet, where I did have it, but it would just take ages to load anything. And I don't even know if this would have been available on a website at the time. So I guess I'm kind of dating myself there. But I did go a couple of times and it was closed. And by the time it did reopen and I got there, yes, there were a lot of people who had made the trip as well. So unfortunately, I didn't get to spend a lot of time at the top as there was a pretty steady line of people. Um, and this was more during tourist season as well. But I don't know really if I could make it to the top again because that was a long climb. But it was very worth it, and I do wish I'd gotten to spend a little more time at the top. But it's worth it to go visit a bit of our history and see what some of the earlier lighthouse keepers, especially those of the lighthouse in its current form, had to contend with when they had to go up and check the light. To go to something now that might be a little more ghastly, well... In my research, in looking at stories, and more specifically, looking up information about possible unidentified people, the Jane and John Does, that may sometimes wash ashore, I actually found that there were quite a few pieces of information over the years about individual pieces or of remains washing ashore, whether it seems something more recent, um, and I'm trying to make things as delicate as possible. Um, if it was more recent with some soft tissue still available, such as a hand where fingerprints were still available, to sometimes just bones. There were quite a few entries um, on a website of unidentified people like that amongst Chincoteague and Accomac. The thing is, we don't know when any of these remains wash ashore exactly how long they've been in the ocean. While a guess could be made if there is any soft tissue still available in that it was more recent, if it is bones, it might be more difficult to really ascertain the age. So could it be someone who went missing two years ago when they went out for a swim and never came back? Or that they were fishing with friends or relatives and fell overboard and drowned? Or even going back further, could these somehow be remains that over the course of, ye of years have been brought back up to the surface through the waves and erosion and have finally made it onto the shore. And with an untold number of ships that have wrecked in the Atlantic, the possibilities of who that may be are truly endless. Could any of those remains be from that Spanish galleon that wrecked so many years ago? The one that is rumored to have brought the ponies to the islands. Though I couldn't find the exact source while looking up information for this episode, I have heard in the past that some believe that some of those who perished when Lagalaga wrecked now inhabit the ponies, that while the men aboard the ship weren't able to make it to shore, their souls lived on, being carried 
onto the island in the form of the horses, that their souls entered the bodies of the creatures as their human forms died to now live on through generations of the iconic Chincoteague ponies. And one of the most famous legends on the eastern shore is that about a horse named Misty, better known as Misty of Chincoteague. And though her story doesn't necessarily include the soul of a drowned mariner, she is linked to some hauntings. Misty was a fabled pony, and an author named Marguerite Henry wrote a book about her in 1947, and Misty became famous through this children's book. When I was younger, and really to today as well, you cannot enter Chincoteague without seeing some mention of her. Now, as a child, I wanted to learn more about her, and I remember one time just going around a store asking my mother to get me anything about Misty, and getting the book, and looking for t-shirts, and even a bracelet made of abalone in the shape of horses. But today, there are a couple of ways that you can still see Misty. Now, one might be slightly macabre, which, yeah, I, I do find it slightly macabre, but Misty died peacefully at the age of 26 in her sleep, and this was in 1972, before I was even born. But I still got to see her one day when I was a child. After she passed away, she was sent to a taxidermist. And while initially on display at a farm, she was eventually moved to the museum on Chincoteague. Um, the Chincoteague Museum. So if you would like to see her, she is still on display. I did search that, but really, when, like I said, when I saw her, I was quite young and just infatuated with Misty, and I don't think I really understood that that was her form, but now that I'm thinking about it, just me personally, I probably would choose not to take my children there if they asked me to, they're old enough now, they can probably make that decision if they ever did want to. But if they were my age, um, and we have visited when they were approximately the same age as I would have been, I would probably tell them to wait. But that is everybody's personal preference. But another way that you may see her is some believe that she still roams with the herds of ponies. That if you know what to look for, if you know what she looks like, as you're traveling the expanse of Chincoteague and look out amongst the wild ponies, you may still see her out there. So before you go to visit the island, maybe look up a few pictures of her so that you know what she looks like and keep your eyes out for her amongst the ponies grazing in the fields with her mane and tail flowing as she runs. And finally, we'll visit a place that we visited before, and that's the Captain Timothy Hill House. Now, this was the topic of a previous episode, so just to give a very short summary, Timothy Hill's house is part of the National Historic Registry and is most likely the oldest surviving house on Chincoteague, being built somewhere around 1800. However, the house was moved at one point as it was set for demolition, um, probably somewhere around 1980. So it is actually in a different location. 
and it's a very, very small house in comparison to what we think of today. There will be a few different pictures in the links, um, so if you really want to see just how small a house would have been back then, you really get an idea of the conditions um, comparatively that people lived in at the time. The house itself measured at around 17 feet by 16 feet, which frankly is probably smaller than the room that I'm recording in at the moment. But the topic of the previous episode was about the tragedy that took place involving Timothy Hill's family, specifically his daughter Jenny and his wife Zipporah. There was a man, 20 years old, that worked for Captain Hill named Tom Freeman. Now, Jenny was only 13, and like I said, Freeman was 20. And while we know that people got married a lot younger in previous centuries, this was definitely way too young and too much of an age difference for the Hill family to ever be comfortable with. And frankly, for any family to be comfortable with, in my opinion, no matter what the decade or century. And so, of course, Freeman's advancements and proposals towards Jenny were always denied by both her and her family. Freeman felt that this was unfair, and one day he ambushed Jenny and Zipporah while they were walking. He shot both of them and then turned the gun on himself. Now, others heard the gunshot and came to the women's aid, and while Zipporah did actually survive the injury, little Jenny died. This poor young girl lost her life at such a young age at the hands of another young person who took an infatuation of her way too far. Today, we would probably recognize some of his actions, such as when he would write letters to and about her as being obsessed with Jenny, and we would really think this would cause some concern. But people didn't really understand that as much back then. Hill, at one point, had even let Freeman go, but actually had him come back to work for him, not recognizing the danger of some of his actions. Hill probably figured this was a young, lovesick man who really didn't pose a threat to his family. But unfortunately, that judgment was wrong. Jenny never got to live her life. She never got to grow up and actually find the, the man that she was meant to spend the rest of her life with. She never got to have a family of her own, to watch her parents play with her children on the hearth of their house, and to grow old and die naturally with her family around her. Bottom line, she just never even got to grow up at all. Those who do visit this historic site have reported that sometimes things happen that are quite out of the ordinary. Though nobody is around, a door might open or close on its own. Sometimes visitors will hear someone walking through the room, which, with a house being only 17 feet by 16 feet and a couple of inches, there's really not much room for anybody to hide or really anywhere for anybody to hide. They also many times report that they hear laughter and they describe this laughter as that from a young girl. Even though Jenny died in her home, did she stay there to relive some of her happier times? To relive possibly playing on the floor as a child 
with a doll that her mother might have made her, to have her father pick her up and swing her around, or as a toddler, maybe throw her up in the air, as so many fathers have done throughout time. And does the laughter signify that she's happy? That even though she didn't get to experience the joys of having her own family, of falling in love, that she remains happy in childhood forever, roaming the walls of the place that she called home, that she both lived and died in. So, listeners, here ends some tales of Accomack County, Virginia, of a region rich in history, both joyous and tragic. And while today we might travel and visit there to explore the scenery, to enjoy the wildlife, and respect the wildlife, remember that, because it might be tempting to approach one of those beautiful ponies, but they're called wild for a reason. In decades past, the tragedies still remain and haunt Chincoteague and Assateague, forever stamping their last known place in life. with the footsteps of their spirits. I'd like to thank everybody for listening today to episode two of Spooktober. Episode three will be up either Friday or Saturday, the 27th or 28th. I hope everybody gets to listen. I'd just also like to say happy birthday to my brother, my late brother who would have been turning 70 today, at least as of the date of recording. I did meet someone who knew him at the library event that I attended last week that I spoke of in the previous episode, episode, and it was as she was looking for me on Facebook, and he's been my profile picture since then. Um, when you know, she was looking for me specifically, I, I pointed out that the picture was of my brother, and you know she told me that she felt he was such a nice man, and that was so good to hear because he was. He was, well, just words can't really describe everything that he was. A brother, father, grandfather, even great-grandfather. Loving, caring, kind, selfless, and just always there for everybody. So, as in every day, we do still miss him, but especially so on his first birthday where he's not with us. I will talk to everybody very soon. Bye-bye.